No man ever died for Christ who did not first live for Christ. No man ever died for Christ who did not first live for Christ. Richard Vermbrand was a pastor in Eastern Europe following World War II when Eastern Europe was um, fully under the control of the Soviet Union and communist uh, control, communist forces. He was in Romania for most of his life there, in and out of prisons. He wrote a book about his experiences and the experiences of the people that he witnessed uh, with witness in the prisons. A book called "Tortured for Christ." In that book, he shared a story. I wanted to share one of them with you. He's there in the jail, and he witnessed many things. And this is one of the stories he wrote about. He wrote that a Christian was sentenced to death. Before being executed, he was allowed to see his wife. His last words to his wife were, You must know that I die loving those who kill me. They don't know what they do. And my last request of you is to love them too. Don't have bitterness in your heart because they kill your beloved one. We will meet in heaven. These words impressed the officer of the secret police who attended the discussion between the two. Afterward, he, the officer, told me the story in prison where he had been put for becoming a Christian. It's pretty powerful the experience of Christians who are losing their lives for the sake of the gospel. Who see death as gain. We're in the book of Philippians, the letter that Paul wrote to his church, a beloved church, a church in which he called them his beloved. He called them his, his friends, the ones he loved, and he wrote to them, and we, we looked at this last week, and we saw the, the great statement of confidence that Paul had, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And we saw how his desire was, if I could die, that would be a good thing. That would be the best thing for me. Because I could live this, I could leave this life, I could leave this imprisonment, I could leave the struggles, yes, but not just that, not just a relief from suffering. That's not what he was after. He was after the glory of being present with his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So for him, the benefit of death meant to be forever with Jesus. That's pretty awesome. And we, we saw that last week. But we saw how he was resigned to the, the truth 
that he was going to end up being uh, released from prison. He's going to end up being reunited with the Philippians. And he looked forward to that. He trusted in that. He hoped in that. He expected that through their prayers and the help of the, uh, the Savior, or the, excuse me, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that he'd be with them again for their progress and joy in the faith. That he would live his life. That he would continue to live for Christ. So, Paul turns his attention now to this very fact. What does it mean to live for Christ? What is that all about? And he encourages the Philippians in these last few verses of Philippians chapter 1 that they engage in gospel living. Know that they, that they rejoice in gospel living. The theme of the gospel is, is, is in and out of every section, every paragraph, all, almost every uh, sentence and every verse of this letter. And joy is there as well. Uh, in and out and among and through all of it is, is joy. Joy in the gospel. And here, it's joy in gospel living. I want us to look at this passage today from Philippians chapter 1. In fact, we are going to take a, a step back and I would like us to look at this entire chapter again. So, I would like you to follow along with me as I read it aloud We're going to look at all of Philippians 1 because these verses that we're going to look at today in particular uh, are are based on, are built on everything that Paul has said up until this point. So, bear with me and follow along as I read aloud from Philippians chapter 1. He begins the letter this, Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. 
The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you or on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. Let's pray. Father, these words are so powerful. We've looked at many of them over the past few weeks. We will look at the last uh, few today. God, I pray that your Spirit will give us understanding, will help us understand what we're seeing, will illuminate the Scriptures, shed light on it in our hearts, in our minds. God, may we, may we be changed and transformed today by what you would have us to know and what you would have us to do, that we may walk out of here in the power of the Holy Spirit through the gospel of Christ, ready to live out our salvation, ready to live worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. The big idea that I want you to to know today and is is there in your bulletins as well so you can follow along and take notes is this that gospel living is possible gospel living is possible in one spirit through the gospel of Christ now that's right there that's right there in the text he's talking about living uh, uh, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, and he's talking about standing firm in one spirit. And I believe these are the main, the main phrases, the main words, the main ideas, the big idea of this entire last paragraph of chapter 1. Paul has told them what he wanted them 
to know up until this point about the gospel, about how it brings us joy, how we ought to live for Christ, how we ought to die for Christ, um, <clears throat> how our prayers and our thanks should be for the advancement of the gospel, how we are, uh, are taking joy in defending it to other people, to speaking, proclaiming, um, announcing Christ, announcing good news, re regardless of the circumstances and regardless of motives that people have. He's talked about his future and his hope. But now he comes back to today. He comes back to, okay, so what does this mean for you guys walking it out day after day, living your lives in Philippi, in your church, in your, in your jobs, in, your, in the work that you do? What, is it, what does that mean? What does that look like? And from here on out, the letter gets very practical. So today's going to springboard us into this, that, into this gospel living and a focus on applying the gospel to our lives. Gospel living is possible in one spirit through the gospel of, of Christ. The first thing I want to show you, it comes from this, just from this, we're going to look at this first verse together, verse 27, and it is this, that gospel living is common citizenship. So that, how did I put it? So that, or so, we live as, and here are your blanks, we live as missionaries in community. We live as missionaries in community. So the first thing, if I were you, I would, I would ask this question. Michael, where does it say missionaries in here? Where does it say community in here? Where are you getting this stuff? Okay, please, ask those questions when I'm preaching. Well, you may not want to... You could ask them out loud, I suppose, and we'll just dialogue a bit. But the, those kinds of questions should go through your mind. Where is he getting these ideas? Okay, I'm going to show you from verse 27. First of all, um, just to emphasize for us here, the very first word, only. Now, the word only doesn't just mean this is the only thing. Okay? He's not saying... Forget everything else I said. Don't worry about the rest. This is all that matters. Only live in, or let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Okay? It doesn't mean what I just said. Alright? It is important to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Absolutely, because Paul tells us that. But he's not saying that's the only thing that matters. He's not saying that's the only thing that you should count on. There are churches, there are people, there are people who claim to be Christ followers who say that's all that really matters. All that really matters is I live a good life. All that really matters is other people live good lives. That they live these lives that are quote-unquote worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, Jesus said, love your neighbor. And so we love our neighbors and we live that way. Or Jesus said, do to others only what you would have them do to you. And I live by the golden rule, so I'm good to go. Because that's all that matters. That is not what Paul is saying here. Okay? Paul is saying, when he uses the word only, he's saying, in the meantime, <laughs> for now, 
Okay, here's what you need to focus on. You've got all of this. We've heard these truths about the gospel. We understand what's there. So, in the meantime, this is how I want you to live, okay? Are we clear, clear with that? In the meantime, only for now, this is what I want you to focus on in the way you live your life, okay? So he says, only in the meantime. And then he says... Let your manner of life be worthy, okay? Let your manner of life be worthy. It's a weird way of putting it. This is actually a command. This is a command. Paul is saying, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's a command. The English Standard Version translates it, let your manner, and it sounds fairly passive, right? It sounds pretty, you know, if, you know, this, if you, if you feel like doing this, or, uh, no, it, this is actually a direct command. It's a forceful, it's the most forceful way of exhorting or encouraging or commanding or ordering somebody to do something. So Paul is using this as a command. Live your lives worthy of the gospel. The, uh, if, you are, if you have an English Standard Version Bible, you might notice that there's a little um, uh, superscript, a little number, a superscript number at the end of this phrase, manner of life, live, or let your manner of life be worthy. And so you could go down to the text note at the very bottom of the page, and it would say this, and I'm, and I'm showing you this because I don't want to Greek out on you too much, but there's a text note in our translation that really helps us. And it says that the Greek, uh, the literal Greek says, only behave or live as citizens worthy. Keep going, of the gospel of Christ. Only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. The reason that that text note is there at the bottom of the page in the fine print, you have to use a, micros or a microscope to see, is that the word for let your manner of life, that verb, that, that word there, meant to live like citizens. Live like the people that you belong to. And this would have been really significant to the Philippians. Because as uh, we looked at before and we talked about uh, Philippi and, and the people there and what that city was like, that city was a Roman colony, which meant that it had all of the protection of Rome on it. That the people who lived there were not considered outcasts from Rome. They were giving given full rights as citizens of Rome, of citizens of the empire. So when Paul uses this word that unhelpfully for us is translated totally differently and doesn't have anything to do with, with citizenship, um, what, what the Philippians were going, were hearing is, oh, citizenship, worthy of the gospel of Christ. Ah, we're citizens of Rome. Oh, but we're also citizens of God's kingdom. We're also citizens, he says later on in, in chapter 3, verse 20, 21, that we're citizens of heaven. This is powerful. This is important. What does it mean to be a citizen? It means that you have your identity in the place that you belong. What does it mean to be a uni United States citizen? It means you have a right to vote, first of all. 
It means you have a right to own property. You have a right to do, conduct business. You have a right to do all of these things. You have a right to be taxed. Isn't that wonderful? As citizens of the United States. And so were the Roman, so were the, the, the people in, in Paul's time. But in Paul's time, Roman citizens were, had rights of exclusion from taxes very often. That's an interesting thing to think about. They took censuses of all of the people that they had conquered and all of the, the lands that they occupied, and that's who they taxed. <laughs> um, anyway, that was just a little aside. But the point being, think about what, it's, what it means to be a citizen of the United States. I was speaking with a, with a, a friend, a, somebody, I've, uh, an acquaintance really, that I've got, been getting to know um, recently, uh, a man who moved here, um, from the other side of the U.S. where he'd been working for a while. Um, and he's here in Yakima and he's wanting to serve and, and, and begin working with a, a local church in our community. And he talked about how um, one of his main focuses right now besides serving in that church is trying to get his citizenship. Well, he's a Canadian citizen. He's not a United States citizen. So he wants, to, he wants to get his citizenship established so that he can live here, so he has a right to be here, to live here, to work here, and to, to be an American. That's a pretty important thing. Well, that same, same concept was what Paul was dealing with here. He's saying, you are citizens Yes, of Rome, but you're also citizens of heaven. Don't forget who you belong to. Don't forget what you're all about. Don't forget your identity. Your identity. Who you are. And that's why he says, live worthy of the gospel of Christ. The old King James Version says, Live becoming of the gospel of Christ. Huh? Becoming? It means live in a way that's appropriate. Live in a way that's, that's right. Um, you think about uh, some of the things that you were dressed in as a child. Or if you had children, some of the outfits that your children wore. There comes a time when little girls need to stop wearing the tiny little dresses that they wore when they were toddlers and start wearing things more appropriate for their age, right? And so, uh, you know, so my girls have dealt with that. Um, uh, You've seen grown women, grown men wearing things that you think, what are you wearing? That's not appropriate. That doesn't belong on an adult person because they're not living something or they're not wearing something that's worthy of or becoming of who they are at that point in life, in that time of life. Well, it's the same idea with living a a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's okay for you to say things And to do things if you're only a citizen of the United States. If you're only a citizen of this world, then by all means, say what you want to say, live like you want to live, do what you want to do. 
Live consistently with everybody else. Do all of the things that everybody else does. But if you're in Christ, now you don't belong to the world anymore. You're not a citizen of the world only. You belong to Christ. You belong to God. He is your Father. You have a new identity. So the way you live your life should be radically different than the people around us. The things that you love, the things that you do, the things that you say and talk about should be different because we're putting on clothing appropriate for who we are. That's what he that's the powerful aspect of what he's trying to say here. So what would that look like for us in general? Not a list of rules, not a list of do's and don'ts. Paul makes a command here to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now he's going to get specific as we go along. In fact, in just a few verses, he's going to get a little more specific. But this general guiding principle should guide everything that we do. It should guide how we think about um, our lives, how we think about our relationships, how we think about work, how we think about school, um, and where we live, and the homes that we live in, and how we conduct those homes. In other words, Paul wanted the Philippians to think in terms of being missionaries. What does a missionary do? Well, a missionary doesn't belong there, typically. A missionary is sent from somewhere to go somewhere. Okay? That's what a missionary... A missionary is a sent one. One who is sent. That's what a missionary is. Paul's saying, you who live in Philippi, you were born there, you grew up there, or maybe you moved there because the Roman government moved you there for a particular job, and you think that you're there for some other reason. Well, guess what? When you came to Christ, you became a missionary right there in your own home, in your own, in your own city. Now you're a representative of God. You're a representative of your Lord Jesus Christ. You are to live as a missionary in that place. But it also means, too, that not only do they find their identity outside of that citizenship, that Roman citizenship, that Philippian citizenship, but they find it in the faith. They find it in Christ, in the Spirit, in the Gospel, in a new community. They become a city within a city. They become citizens within a citizenship. They become a community within a community. That's what a church is. And so, so whether, although he doesn't come out and expand on that idea here, all of that is wrapped up in and is unpacked in that simple phrase, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That we live as missionaries in community together. That's very important. And the mission and the community is something that we have embraced as a language for describing our groups that meet together in homes. And that's why we call them missional communities. That's what they're all about. 
to be on mission as a community within a community. How about you? Where are you? What are we? Have you embraced that identity? Are you living in that way? And are you pursuing that kind of community? Okay? You may say yes, but let's go a little further. Because the next idea carries on from the first, and that is this, that gospel living is common conviction. Gospel living is common conviction, so we commit to personal gospel sharing. Let's look at that. Look at the next phrase with me. He says, So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Okay, there's a lot going on there. There are a lot of words. And I, I can't preach an individual sermon on, sermon on every phrase. So I'm just going to hit the highlights here. Um, he talks about them standing firm in one spirit. He talks about them striving side by side in a, in a, in a little bit. And you'll see this, uh, see this bear out in the next section. But he's going to talk about their opponents. And then he's also going to talk about them suffering and engaged in the same conflict. These are key words. I, want, I wanted to point those out even though they make, will make more sense later on. But... The idea of standing firm, at first one would think that's, that sounds like a military type of term. Standing firm, boom, I'm at my post, I've got the armor of God on me. Ephesians 6 says, stand firm therefore with the, the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and, and the rest. Standing firm, like I'm going to hold the line. But, when he talks about striving side by side, the, the metaphor shifts slightly to athletics. It shifts to this, this competition that took place when athletes gathered together and competed against one another. The striving is actually struggling, or it would have been a word used of the Greco-Roman wrestlers. Struggling, wrestling with one another. In fact, Paul uses that same word in Ephesians chapter 6. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Okay? I reference Ephesians chapter 6 because um, I want us to see the contrast between it and this passage in, in Philippians. But, the, I, the anyway, he's, he's moving to this athletic competition imagery. His, the standing firmer, holding the line, and he, he talks about striving side by side. You can imagine two athletes um, side by side, working together against a common opponent, right? And in a common conflict. And what are they, what are they striving for? Look at what they're striving for. He says they're striving for the faith of the gospel. Whenever the word Faith is used, and it's preceded oftentimes in the New Testament by this simple little throwaway word for us in English, this definite article, the faith. Pay attention to that. Because probably what he's referring to is not your belief, not 
a belief or a conviction about things, although it is certainly a common conviction, but it is the faith. The faith, and here he defines it for us and helps us out. The faith of the gospel. It's the truth that we believe. It's the common conviction that we have. So standing firm, they're holding the line, they're convicted about these things for this faith of the gospel, this true doctrine, this true testimony of who Jesus was and what He did. These are the things that they are to strive side by side for. They're to strive side by side for these things. What are these things? Well, that would take an entire uh, seminary class on theology to, to unpack. What are these things? In short, they are the things that Paul uh, and the Philippians believed in at the beginning of the gospel. At the beginning of the gospel, when God began a good work in them, the, the, the work that, that, God, that Paul is con- convicted of and, and convinced that will continue in them and in him that the gospel is this process that God will complete at the day of Jesus Christ. It's these, these tenets of the faith, belief in Jesus as the only Son of God, Jesus as God in the flesh even, Jesus as the perfect sinless sacrifice, Jesus as a perfect um, keeper of the law. Uh, Jesus as a as the one who did miracles. Jesus as the one who taught about the kingdom and about the way to reconciliation with the Father. Jesus who didn't just talk about it and give us an example, but he was the way when he died on the cross, when he was buried in a grave, when he rose from the dead to defeat sin and death, not for Himself, but for us as well, so that we could live with Him. These are the things that they believed. These are the things that we must believe to be in Christ. These are the things that we strive side by side for. These are the faith of the gospel. We strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Well, what did that mean for them? It meant to commit to personal gospel sharing. It meant that this message was not just for them and for them alone. It wasn't a message that they, they thought about and they, they, they prayed about and they sang songs about and then they went back to their homes and their work and the rest of their lives and they lived normal, everyday citizens of Rome lives. It meant that it carried a weight to them. To strive for this meant that this was always on their tongues. That it was, they were always ready to share this good news with the people around them. They were engaged in the same conflict that Paul had. What was that? Paul in prison for the sake of the gospel. He was there because he preached Christ. He was there because he said Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the only truth. Jesus is the only life. And the world didn't want to hear it. And he suffered for it. And he was imprisoned for it. And he tells the Philippians to do the same. 
to live the same, to commit your life to that message. That is all that matters. One spirit, one mind. It's a common conviction. So right about now, don't want to distract you too much, but right now, all over the United States, men are engaged in conflict, in struggle, in striving. They're playing a game, an athletic competition. They stand across from one another at an imaginary line called the line of scrimmage. And they stand firm in their place. And they strive side by side for what? For yardage, for points, for victory, for glory. How much greater is the gospel of Jesus Christ? That we should stand firm in one spirit, the spirit of Jesus Christ, with one mind, striving side by side, engaged in a great conflict, a battle for souls, a battle, yes, for victory, a battle, yes, for glory, but not our own. Not the glory of the River Church, not the glory of your name and your reputation, but the, for the glory and the praise of Jesus Christ and God our Father. There was conflict. And just like, just like the men on the field, they had an opponent. And we have opponents. The last few verses we can sum up in one idea, and that is this, that gospel living is common conflict. Common conflict. So... We joyfully accept mm, suffering for Christ. We joyfully accept suffering for Christ. Look at those verses with me again. Because in verse 28, he shifts. Everything seems to be good. Rah, rah, rah. Win one for the Gipper. Right? You can imagine. You can imagine the team gathered in the locker room or on the sideline. We're going to do it. We've got this. And then the coach says, and, I, and listen guys, I don't want you to be scared of the other team. I don't want you to be frightened by them. They're pretty big. In fact, they've got some all pros over there. In fact, some of those guys make more money than you. In fact, um, they're out to get you and they'll do whatever it takes to destroy you, to defeat you, to break your bones, to crack your skull, to do whatever it takes. Okay, well, that's not what Paul is trying to say. But could you imagine a coach doing that and deflating his team right before he gets out there? Well, there is a little bit of a shift here. 
So, so take it seriously because he says, uh, he says, I want you to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. I want you to stand firm in one spirit and not be frightened. Not being frightened. I don't want you to be frightened in anything by your opponents. He says, if by doing that, by standing firm and not being frightened, it, this is a sign to them. And, and the ESV helps us out to emphasize it. This is a clear sign to them. It's, a, it's an omen to them, in other words. It's, it's something that is, is just obvious, and, and just, they can't get away from it, that it's their destruction. That, that when, when, when Christians stand firm in one spirit, when they strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, when we're, they're not even frightened by their opponents, oh, do your worst. What's your worst? Oh, torture me? Oh, kill me? Oh, okay. Go right ahead. I'm not frightened of that. I'm going to live for Christ, no matter what you say. Not frightened. That's a sign to them that something is amiss. Because they don't live like that. They don't believe that. They see that as a sign of their destruction. Their ultimate destiny is not where we are going. But for them, it's a sign of their salvation, which is from God. Right? It's from God, which has been, he says, granted to you, or for it has been granted to you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And then here, here I go, I already mentioned this phrase, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. See, they were engaged in a common conflict. This common uh, athletic um, competition. This, this conflict actually is agony. It was where we get our word agony. They were agonizing together against an opponent. Now, this is not the opponent that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. In Ephesians 6, he says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and powers and principalities and um, the, the authorities of, of darkness and cosmic powers over, over this present darkness, etc. Okay? So he's talking about spiritual um, battles, spiritual opponents there. But here he's talking about real life flesh and blood opponents. Real life people who are trying to get them. <laughs> real life people who say, I don't like what you stand for. I don't like what you believe. That offends me. I don't like how you live because that makes me feel bad about my life. And I should be able to live however I want to live. I should be able to say whatever I want to say and not feel bad that you don't like it. Okay? The same thing that the Philippians were going through in first century Philippi um, in uh, Macedonia are the exact same things that we are going through as Christians in this world, in this country, at this time, and around the world as well. And you know what? Believers have always been faced with that. Because, Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. There will be people, real life, flesh and blood people, who don't like you for what you stand for. They won't like what you believe in. They will disagree with you vehemently, and they will do whatever they can do 
to keep you from offending them, to keep you from living out the life that God has called you to live. It's happened, and it will continue to happen. What are we to do about it? Are we to be frightened? Are we to be frightened by legislation? Are we to be, to be frightened by city councils? Are we to, to be frightened by presidents? Are we to be frightened by Supreme Courts? No. We are to stand firm in the gospel. We ought to keep opening our mouths for truth. We ought to keep living lives that are consistent with, worthy of the gospel, demonstrating that the power of God is in us to live as He has called us to live. But yet, we will suffer. We will struggle. We will have opponents against us. And it will not be fun. It will not be uh, enjoyable. We will experience suffering. And not just suffering in general, not just the kind of suffering that happens as a matter of course in life, the suffering of of cars breaking down, the suffering of losing jobs, or not getting promotions, or uh, sickness, and illness, and even death of family members. He's not talking about suffering in general. He's talking about the suffering that results when we are in conflict with the world. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. And he meant it. John 16, 33. We will have tribulation. Prior to that, in that passage, the upper room discourse in John 13 through 16, Jesus said in John 15, verses 18 and following, he says, if, the world, if you were like the world, if you were of the world, if you were, of, if you were the world, they'd love you. Everyone would love you, but because you're not. But because I chose you out of the world. The world hates you for that. They hate you because of my name. They hate you because you stand for something that they don't stand for. They don't like it. And they will be your opponents. They, you will have conflict with them. But stand firm. Hold the ground. In fact, he says it this way. It has been granted to you. That word is weak. Because really the word means grace. It's one of the rare times in the New Testament where the word that's usually translated as grace the unmerited favor of God, the goodness of God, His his steadfast love that is abounding to us who are sinners, who don't deserve it. Grace. This is one of these rare times when that word is used as a verb. How would you translate that? Maybe it has been graciously given to you. Maybe that would be a way to put it. In other words, don't see your conflict Don't see the suffering as a result of conflict as something to go, woe is me, it's my cross to bear. See it as a gift given to you. That's why I want to encourage us to joyfully accept it. Joyfully accept it when we encounter that conflict. And say, thank you God that I'm worthy to suffer for your name as the apostles did in Acts chapters 4, 5, and 6. Rejoice in that. It is a gift. Imagine with me the gift. You you wake up on 
Christmas morning. Christmas is coming. It's almost here. You wake up on Christmas morning and you open a package and it's a wonderful gift and you go, oh my goodness, this is great. Oh, I can't believe this is exactly what I want. And you open it up and you realize that the gift needs to be assembled. And so you begin taking the parts out and, and you, you grab this sheet of paper that's, that's folded up in there and you go, what's this? And you toss it and you throw it away. Those are the instructions. And you're just going to put things together. Some of you do that. I, on the other hand, I sit down in my chair and I turn the lamp on and I study the instructions for a couple hours and then I start to put it. I don't really do that, but I might as well. Some of you think I do. But you, you, you start putting this thing together. You start assembling the parts and you go, this is a wonderful gift. And you look at the giver and you say, thank you for this gift. This is great. And then as you're putting things together, you encounter something, a piece that just doesn't seem right. And you go, what is this? In fact, it may disturb you a little bit. It may be one of these things like, this, I don't understand what this has to do with the rest. And you may leave it out. And you go, eh, toss that, toss that aside. Okay? And you put your thing together and you get it looking like it's supposed to look and you look at the box and you look at it and like, yes! It's, it's good, it's right, and, and, and you start to, and you want to enjoy your gift, but it's not working properly. Something's not right with it. What's wrong? And you look over at that, that discarded part that you thought, that is not right. That doesn't belong. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel right. And you realize that you're missing an important component for making it all the way the designer made it. Maybe if you had looked at the instructions, you would have known that it was essential to enjoying the grace, to enjoying the gift. Isn't that, though, what we often do with the grace that God has given us? We think, God, your gift of salvation is wonderful. God, your gift of family. God, your gift of health. Um, this and that and the other thing are wonderful. And I love your love and I love the feelings that I have when I think about how amazing you are and those wonderful times of worship and, and the times when everything has been great and good. But this other piece, this conflict... This difficulty, this suffering doesn't belong. It doesn't fit. And God is saying, look at my instructions. Look at my word and see what I have written for you. See what I have done. See what has been done for you. And accept that as a gracious gift. Why? Because in partaking of that suffering, in partaking and accepting of that conflict with joy, we are partaking in Christ Himself. That is the gift. The gift is the giver. He says, suffer for His sake. The sake of Christ. It would be easy for us 
to stop here and say, do this. Live as missionaries in community. Get this right, church. Do it. And to say, to commit to personal gospel sharing. Woe be unto you if you are not sharing the gospel. Right? Or to say, what's your problem? Why are you, why are you sad about the suffering that you're experiencing? Joyfully accept that suffering. That's what we're supposed to do. And woe to be, be to me if I left it at that. <laughs> because what Paul says next, the reason we do those things, the reason we walk them out, is explained when he says this. Have your mind, or have this mind, in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He was God but he emptied himself of his rights of divinity. He emptied himself and he, uh, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, there's Jesus, God, in the flesh, the God-man going, here I am, I'm a human, this is not easy for me. He's, he didn't just stop there. He said he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. That is the person for whose sake we suffer. For whose sake we strive side by side together with. Whose, for His sake we engage in the conflict. It is for Christ. It is for Christ's glory. When we go about our lives, when we, we, we set about living our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel, we may be prone to thinking, will people think I'm a good person? Will people still accept me even though I stand for Christ? Can I live both ways? And Jesus is saying, what about me and my glory? What about my life? I lived for you. I died for you. No man ever died for Christ who did not first live for Christ. What's your story? What's your outcome going to be? Will it be like a young girl whom... Richard Vermbrand wrote about in his book, and I'll close with this. One of our workers was a young girl of the underground church. The communist police discovered that she secretly spread gospels and taught children about Christ. They decided to arrest her. But to make the arrest more agonizing and as painful as they could, they decided to delay her arrest a few weeks until the day she was to be married. On her wedding day, the girl was dressed as a bride, the most wonderful, joyous day in a girl's life. Suddenly, 
The door was pushed open and the secret police rushed in. When the bride saw the secret police, she held out her arms toward them to be handcuffed. They roughly put the manacles on her wrists. She looked toward her beloved, her groom, then kissed the chains and said, I thank my heavenly bridegroom for this jewel he has presented to me on my marriage day. I thank him that I am worthy to suffer for him. She was dragged off with weeping Christians and a weeping bridegroom left behind. They knew what happens to young Christian girls in the hands of communist guards. After five years, she was released, a destroyed, broken woman looking 30 years older. Her bridegroom had waited for her. She said it was the least she could do for her Christ. Her Christ who suffered and died for her. Will we live for Christ? My friends, we don't live in a world that our brothers and sisters lived in in the 1950s and 1960s in Romania. We don't live in a world that our brothers and sisters live in in North, um, North Africa and Central Asia and East Asia and the Middle East. We don't live in, in times like that. What is preventing us from living a life like that? If our brothers and sisters under such persecution could live so boldly for Christ, what is stopping us from living that boldly for the Christ who lived and died for us? Let's pray. Father, what a word. I can't live up to it. I cannot. Praise be to you, though, that gospel living is possible in one spirit through the gospel of Christ. God, we need you. It's only through your power that we can live like that. It is only by your grace. It is only by your mercy that we can. It is only, God, by the Spirit dwelling in us, empowering us, can we live worthy of the gospel citizens of heaven, yes, and citizens of our world that we are a part of. But let us never forget, God, that we belong to you. In Jesus' name, amen.